Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. This season, we're discussing the history of the Mughal Empire. This is episode 8-15, Akbar and the Rajputs. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Humayun dies in 1556 and his son, Akbar, becomes the new Mughal emperor. Akbar is a very young emperor and has to work his way out from under his handlers. Akbar must also deal with the threat of the Rajputs based in Rajasthan. He neutralizes much of the Rajput threat by marrying their daughters and abolishing the jizya. And with that, let's discuss the other method Akbar used to neutralize the Rajputs. Dealing with the Rajputs, Part 2 Akbar, who was still at war with the Rajputs, decided to attack the Mawar kingdom in modern southeastern Rajasthan in 1567. This kingdom was ruled by a guy named Uday Singh, whose father had fought against Babur nearly 40 years earlier. Uday Singh was living in this powerful fortress called Chitor when he heard that the Mughals were coming. He prepared by stationing 8,000 soldiers in the fort, appointing a general named Jaimal Rator to defend the fort and stocking the fort with enough food to last for years. He also destroyed the countryside so the Mughals couldn't find any food. Then, Uday Singh and his family moved to a stronghold in the hills north of the city and named it, get this, Udaipur after himself. And to this day, Udaipur is still a pretty famous city in India. Akbar arrived at Chitor in late October 1567 and set up camp at the base of the fort. His camp was apparently very large and nearly 10 miles long. Akbar was planning to lay siege to the fort using two methods. First, he was going to have people tunnel under the fort and set off explosives. Second, he was going to use this thing called a sabat, kind of like a covered trench to get close to the fortress walls. But things didn't quite go as planned. The Mughal soldiers dug two tunnels under the fort, filled them with gunpowder, and then lit the fuses. One of the fuses burned slower than the other, so when the first one went off, the Mughals thought both of them had gone off. They went rushing into the tunnels just as the second one exploded. A lot of people, somewhere between 200 to 500, were killed in the explosion, and many of them were Akbar's best soldiers. So the Mughals now had to rely on their second method since the first one didn't work out. Akbar's engineers began building a slow-moving fortification called a sabat. The sabat had walls and a wooden roof to protect the people inside from arrows and other projectiles. It was wide enough for 10 horsemen to ride side by side, and the Mughals also hid their cannons inside this sabat. The front of the sabat was always under construction as it moved forward. This was the most dangerous part of the moving fortification because the Rajput defenders targeted that section first. The only protection for the Mughal workers at the front of the sabat was a screen made of raw hides. But 
These workers were also paid in gold and silver, so that kind of made the risk worth it. The Rajputs eventually saw that the Sabat, this covered fortification, was getting close, and so they offered to surrender. But the Rajputs and the Mughals couldn't agree on anything during the negotiations, and things fell apart. On February 23, 1568, Akbar himself shot and killed the Rajput commander Jaimal Rator using his favorite musket, the Sangram. With Jaimal's death, the Rajputs lost all hope of either victory or an honorable surrender. Soon after that, small fires began appearing throughout the fort. This was the beginning of the Johar the tradition where the Rajputs set their women on fire before rushing out to fight the Mughals to the death. The Rajput musketeers, however, had a different idea. They tied up their women and children and pretended to be Mughal soldiers. They made it look like they were taking their families as prisoners and pushed them ahead of them as they left the fort. Several Rajput soldiers were able to use this ploy to get away and escape into the hills. Akbar was so mad when he found out, he ordered everyone else in the fort to be executed. And with this commandment, Chitor fell to the Mughals. However, the Rajput leader, Uday Singh, was still free. After he was done with the Mawar kingdom, Akbar went to attack Rantambore in February 1569. It was about 200 miles northeast of Mawar. He used his cannons to bombard the fortress and the walls were reduced to rubble. The Rajput king, Raja Sujana Singh, wanted to make peace, so he sent his sons to meet with Akbar. Akbar gave them robes of honor, sent them back, and accepted Raja Sujana's submission. Raja Sujana wound up joining Akbar's court. Akbar then sent an army led by one of his generals named Majnun Khan Kakask to Kalinjar, which is in northern Madhya Pradesh, India. Majnun means crazy in Arabic, so this was a bit of a strange name, but I digress. The local Rajput leader, Raja Ram Chandra, surrendered without a fight, and Akbar rewarded him with an estate in Allahabad. Then, Akbar appointed Majnun Crazy Khan as the commander of the Kalinjar Fort. By 1570, Akbar had pretty much taken care of all of the Rajputs, either by marriage or by warfare. The only one who was still around was Uday Singh, but he died in 1572. His son, Rana Pratap Singh, kept fighting against the Mughals and swore to kick all Muslims out of India. Akbar sent an army to deal with him, leading to the Battle of Haldigat in 1576. It took place in Rajsaman, which is in Rajasthan, about 30 miles north of Udaipur. The Mughals won, and Rana Pratap Singh fled into the hills. He remained hidden for nearly six years. He reappeared in 1582 and recovered some territory while Akbar was busy fighting in Punjab. Rana Pratap Singh died in 1597 and was succeeded by his son, Amar Singh. Akbar sent his son, Salim, who would later become the Emperor Jahangir, to deal with Amar Singh. Salim recaptured much of the territory, but Amar Singh continued to fight a guerrilla war from the hills. 
Finally, in 1616, during Jahangir's reign, Amar Singh surrendered. Akbar on the Hunt Akbar was an avid hunter. He is said to have gone on hunting expeditions for big games such as elephants, lions, and tigers. These hunting expeditions were not just for sport, but also allowed Akbar to display his power and wealth. Hunting was also seen as a way to test one's physical and mental strength. Akbar was known to hunt on horseback using a bow and arrow. Sometimes, he also used cheetahs. Cheetahs, yes, the fastest land animal in the world, were considered a symbol of royalty, wealth, and power as they were difficult to obtain and costly to maintain. In the Mughal Empire, these hunting expeditions with cheetahs were called shikar. Akbar kept a large number of cheetahs at his court and trained them to hunt. He really loved his cheetahs and was often seen playing with them. Akbar's skill at training cheetahs is highlighted in this article entitled Akbar and His Cheetahs by Inayatullah Khan, written for the 2012 Indian History Congress. As far as the training of the cheetahs is concerned, in former times, people managed to train a newly caught cheetah for the chase in the space of three months or if they exerted themselves in two months. But Akbar trained them in the short space of 18 days. Akbar used to take it upon himself to keep and train cheetahs, astonishing the most experienced by his success. Before Akbar, a cheetah would not kill more than three antelope in one and the same chase. But now, after training, he would hunt as many as twelve. Abu Fazl informs us that in former times, cheetahs were kept blindfolded, but at the court of Akbar, because of improved training, it was no longer necessary to do so. Once, from the kindness shown by Akbar, an antelope made friendship with a cheetah. They lived together and enjoyed each other's company. The most remarkable thing was this, that the cheetah, when led off against other antelope, would pounce upon them as any other cheetah. At Akbar's establishment, there were 200 keepers in charge of the Casa cheetahs. Sometimes three or four men were appointed to train and look after a cheetah. Another animal Akbar hunted often were elephants. Ironically, he used trained elephants to hunt wild elephants. There were three ways to hunt elephants. Domesticated elephants were trained to charge and capture wild elephants. Or Akbar might hunt wild elephants from the back of a trained elephant. Or the final method was by surrounding a herd of elephants with a group of soldiers and capturing the animals alive. Once captured, the elephants were used in royal processions, for transportation, and, of course, in battle. Akbar also used elephants as a hunting platform. He would sit on a specially designed platform on the back of an elephant and use a bow and arrow to hunt big game, such as lions and tigers. It may seem cruel to us now to hunt elephants for sport, but for the Mughals, hunting and capturing elephants was almost a necessity. Elephants were used for transportation, in battle, and for the construction of buildings and temples. Hunting was also necessary to control the elephant population. 
Akbar's Sufi influence. To celebrate his victory in Chitor in 1568, Akbar went on a pilgrimage to the tomb of a Sufi saint named Khawaja Moinuddin Chichti in Ajmer, Rajasthan. Khawaja Moinuddin Chichti was a Persian Sufi scholar who lived in India during the 12th century. He's considered one of the greatest Sufi mystics or scholars in Islamic history, and his teachings have had a huge impact on the Muslims of India and beyond. He was born in Sistan, Iran, and studied under well-known Sufi scholars. Later, he traveled to India and settled in Ajmer, Rajasthan. He was known for his compassion, his generosity, and his spiritual teachings, and he attracted disciples from all walks of life. He's buried in Ajmer, where his tomb is visited by thousands of people every year. Akbar had already been visiting Khawaja Mu'idun Chichti's tomb annually for over six years. Like most Muslims in the Indian subcontinent at the time, Akbar was into Sufism. He was 26 years old at this point and had a large harem, but he still didn't have any kids. This was surprisingly pretty common for Mughal emperors. They would get married early and have lots of wives and concubines, but it would take them a while to have their first child. Akbar would visit these Sufi sheikhs and ask them to pray for him to have a child. One of the sheikhs, Salim Chishti, told Akbar that he would have three sons. Not long after that, the daughter of the Raja of Amber got pregnant. Akbar sent her to live with Sheikh Salim Chishti so she could receive the blessings of his home, and on August 30th, 1569, she gave birth to a little boy. Akbar named him Salim, after the Sheikh, but he affectionately called him Sheikh Baba. Of course, this child later became Emperor Jahangir. Akbar also gave his son's mother the title Maryam Az-Zamani. To honor Sheikh Salim, Akbar built a new capital near the town where he lived and named it Fatipur Sikri. The Jama Mosque, which was also built by Akbar, is located there. Akbar wound up switching to a new capital about a decade later, but in the meantime, he had two more sons, Murad in 1570 and Daniel in 1572, who was named after the Sufi Sheikh whose house he was born in. The Conquest of Gujarat By 1572, Akbar had pretty much taken care of all of the Rajputs and he decided it was time to deal with Gujarat. Gujarat had been causing problems for him for a while since the king of Gujarat was giving refuge to Mughal rebels, which led to chaos as the rebels tried to take over Gujarat for themselves. There were three main groups of rebels operating in Gujarat. The Faoladis, Afghans, the Habashis, Africans, and the Mirzas, rebel Mughal princes and nobles. Akbar finally got his chance to take over Gujarat when a minister invited him to do so. He marched on Gujarat in the summer of 1572 and took the capital without a fight. The various rebel groups quickly surrendered to him and he appointed his foster brother, Mirza Aziz Koka, as the new governor. After taking the Gujarat capital, 
Akbar marched on the port city of Surat, which also surrendered after a short siege. This was the first time Akbar had ever seen the sea, and he even went out on a boat. During this trip, he met the Portuguese, who controlled a few forts along the coast like Diu and Daman, which, by the way, we talked about in earlier episodes. Stay tuned, because this meeting with the Portuguese would have a huge impact on Akbar's religious beliefs later on. With Gujarat subdued, Akbar and his army began the long journey back north. Thinking he was too far away to do anything immediately, the nobles in Gujarat declared independence from Mughal rule. Akbar surprised everyone when he turned his army right back around to deal with the rebellion. Even though he had already traveled nearly 600 miles, he made it back to Gujarat in just nine days. The rebels were surprised to see Akbar and his imperial army return so quickly. Akbar suppressed the rebellion by 1573. This was necessary because Gujarat was very important because of its long coastline and all the international trade that went through it. Needless to say, Conquering this land was a huge financial boost for Akbar and the Mughal Empire. The Conquest of Bengal Bengal is a region in the eastern part of the Indian subcontinent. It is now made up of the Indian state of West Bengal, the independent country of Bangladesh, and parts of the Indian states of Assam and Tripura. It has a long and rich history and has been a center of trade and cultural exchange for many centuries. Bengal has a diverse population with many different languages, cultures, and religions. Bengali is the official language of the region and Islam and Hinduism are the main religions. The Bengal region is largely flat and is crisscrossed by a number of rivers including the Ganges, Brahmaputra, and Meghna rivers. The Ganges and Brahmaputra rivers are two of the largest and most important rivers in South Asia, and they flow right through the heart of Bengal. Bengal has a humid subtropical climate with high humidity and a monsoon season that lasts from June to September. The region is known for its fertile soil and abundant rainfall, which makes it an important agricultural area. The ruler of Bengal at this time was an Afghan named Suleiman Khan Karani. Technically, he was a Mughal vassal, but he acted independently, gathering as much men, weapons, and money as he wanted. Nonetheless, he continued to read the khutbah and strike coins in Akbar's name, signaling his submission to the Mughal throne. When Suleiman Khan Karani died in 1572, he was succeeded by his son, Dawood Khan Karani. Dawood Khan did away with the nominal submission to the Mughals and proclaimed his full independence. He read the khutbah and struck coins in his own name, which was enough to give Akbar a reason to invade Bengal. In 1574, Akbar personally led an army towards Bengal. Their first stop was at Patna in the modern Indian state of Bihar in eastern India. The Mughals easily defeated the Afghan defenders there. After taking Patna, 
Akbar sent an army of 20,000 soldiers to continue the campaign into Bengal. This army, led by his trusted general Munaim Khan, traveled down the Ganges River into Bengal. Their Afghan opponents were quickly demoralized at the sight of this large Mughal army and fled to their capital in Tanda, which is now in the Indian state of West Bengal. Munim Khan and the Mughal troops captured Tanda without a fight, and this conquest marks the beginning of the Mughal era in Bengal. As the Mughals continued to conquer more and more of Bengal, the Afghans fled into the forests and continued to resist the Mughals for the next 40 years. They were joined in their fight by Muslims, Hindus, Portuguese renegades, and local chieftains, all of whom saw the Mughals as foreign Chagatai Turkish invaders. The Mughals, however, continued to pursue the Afghans in four different directions. North to Goragat in modern Bangladesh. South to Shotgun, also known as Shaptagram, and located in modern West Bengal, India. East to Shanargan in central Bangladesh on the banks of the Brahmaputra River. And southeast to Fatibad, also in central Bangladesh and now called Faridpur. Akbar's general, Majnun Crazy Khan, died fighting in Goragat. These were intense campaigns featuring brutal and pitched battles. One example is the Battle of Tukaroy, which took place in March 1575 in Medinipur in West Bengal. It was led by Munim Khan and Todar Mal, who was Akbar's Hindu finance minister. There were an unprecedented number of casualties on both sides, and the Mughals filled eight minarets with enemy skulls as a warning. This was a major blow to the resistance in Bengal. After this defeat, Dawood Khan surrendered to Munim Khan in April 1575. The Mughal general presented the Afghan leader with a sword, a belt, and a cloak, and Dawood Khan turned towards the Mughal capital, Fatipur Sikri, and prostrated in submission. A few months later, in October 1575, Munim Khan died, and Dawood Khan took this opportunity to rebel yet again. He gathered his scattered forces and began attacking the Mughals. Akbar sent Raja Todarmal and his general Khan Jahan to take back Bengal. Within a month, the Mughals had retaken the capital of Tanda. The following summer, in July 1576, they faced off against Dawood Khan's forces in the Battle of Rajmahal in the modern state of Jharkhand, India, on the banks of the Padma River. The Mughals crushed the Afghans again, and their best field commander was killed in action. Dawood Khan was captured and taken alive. But there were no honorific robes or belts this time. Khan Jahan ordered Dawood Khan beheaded. Dawood Khan's body was hung from a gibbet while his head was shipped back to Akbar. In the next episode, we will discuss Akbar's strange relationship with religion. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, you know, iPhone, iPad, or any Mac computer, 
open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you prefer to use Spotify, simply open the Spotify app and, again, search for Islamic History Exclusive. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic History. If you'd like to know what you'll be hearing on Islamic History Exclusive, just stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium series. Also, be sure to follow Islamic History Podcast on YouTube and TikTok for additional content. And finally, as always, special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Siroj for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season two of the Umayyad Caliphate presented by Islamic History Exclusive. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail, and this is episode 2-15. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Hajjaj ibn Yusuf appointed his cousin, Muhammad ibn al-Qasim, to lead an invasion of Sindh. Muhammad ibn al-Qasim finally captured the port city of Daybul in 93 AH. After Nizak's betrayal, Qutayba ibn Muslim began dealing with multiple rebellions in Khurasan. He put most of these rebellions down, but now Samarkand had overthrown its king and rebelled against the Umayyads. And with that, let's continue our discussion of the Umayyad conquest of Sindh. As we mentioned in the opening, Muhammad ibn al-Qasim had conquered a lot of territory in Sindh. The port city of Daybul fell in 93 AH. This is on the Sindh River Delta in what is now modern southern Pakistan, where the river flows into the Arabian Sea. This was 93 AH, which is the same year that we left off with Qutayba ibn Muslim in Khorasan. So I'm trying to keep things in line here between these multiple storylines going on. With the conquest of Daybul, Muhammad ibn Qasim ordered the construction of a masjid or a mosque and several homes for Muslim settlers. After Daybul had been pacified, Muhammad ibn al-Qasim led his troops upriver to the city of Nirun, which is near modern-day Hyderabad. The city of Nirun surrendered peacefully and agreed to pay tribute. At that point, Muhammad ibn al-Qasim split his army into two. He continued to lead one faction toward Sehwan, which is just north of Hyderabad, and Sehwan also fell to the Umayyads. His second-in-command led the other faction, the other side of the army, towards Sadusan, and Sadusan also surrendered peacefully to the Umayyads. And now, with so much territory on the western side of the river under his control, Muhammad ibn al-Qasim prepared to cross the Sindh River, where the former king of Sindh, King Dahir, had gathered a large army to confront the Umayyads. 
To get across the river, Muhammad ibn al-Qasim and the Umayyads had to build a bridge of boats. Pontoon bridges or boat bridges, these things have been used throughout history. From a military perspective, when an army has to cross a river, it has basically three options. They can either build a real bridge, which takes too long. They can swim across, which is too dangerous. Or they can sail across, and that can often be very long or too difficult to organize if you don't have enough boats for all of the troops to go all at once. So the next best option is a pontoon bridge or a boat bridge. A pontoon bridge lines up several boats basically next to each other to cross the river. And once you have these boats lined up, you take several wooden planks or boards and these are placed or nailed across the boats that are going across the river, creating a temporary bridge. So Muhammad ibn al-Qasim did something just like this. He did have several boats with him, not enough to take his entire army across at once, but he did have enough to build this pontoon bridge across the river. The boats were weighed down with sand and gravel. This was to make them more stable. And then wooden planks were nailed across the boats to make a sort of bridge. Muhammad ibn al-Qasim did not march his entire army across the pontoon bridge. Instead, he ordered a few infantrymen to gather on top of the bridge. Once they had gathered on top of this temporary pontoon bridge, the entire row of boats were pushed out and swung around. And then once it was lined up with the opposite side of the river, the Umayyad soldiers charged up the riverbank to fight the Sindhi troops waiting there with King Dahir. So this first wave of Umayyad forces rushed up the riverbank, fought back King Dahir's troops, thereby securing the riverbank. And once the riverbank had been secured, this allowed the rest of the Umayyad army, including its cavalry and siege weapons, to cross the river safely and easily. So now the Umayyads were on the other side of the river. They had not defeated King Dahir. They had not even really faced his full force yet. This was going to be the final showdown between the Umayyad forces led by Muhammad ibn al-Qasim and King Dahir's forces. King Dahir, the leader or the commander of the Sindh army, he was riding a white elephant. And as the battle got underway, he would shoot and pick off different Umayyad soldiers from atop his white elephant with his bow and arrow. 